I've titled the message today, The Power of the Word of God. The Power of the Word of God. We do have some slides. Uh, our first slide is just the scripture. Um, we'll reread these verses, these four verses. This will be where we're focusing today, uh, verses 7 through 10. We might tap into verse 11, but we'll see. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey from the honeycomb. Our next slide and our first point then, number one, is the word of God has power to save you. The word of God has power to save you. This is from verse 7a which says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The expression, the law of the Lord, is often used in the Psalms to refer to all of Scripture, not just referring to the five books of Moses, or more narrowly, just referring to the actual commandments themselves. No, the law of the Lord is a broader term that has more meaning to it than just the commandments. When we say the law of the Lord is perfect, or when, uh, is this David? David. When David says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, he is not referring to the Ten Commandments. Rather, he is referring to the whole of the Word of God. The Word of God has power to save you. As far as subpoints go, the Word of God has power to save you from your sin. Power to save you from your sin. It's not just brokenness. It's not just mistakes. It's not just regrets or bad decisions. But it's sin. Sin is a transgression of God's law. Sin is a violation of God's character. God has told us who he is and what he expects of us on the basis of who he is. And we have broken that law again and again and again spoken about it a few moments ago, but the summary of that law, the Ten Commandments, is summarized yet again with the first and second, or the two great commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. To expand on those then through the Ten Commandments, hopefully you all have them memorized, but there's some memory aids for those Ten Commandments. Number one, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, or, is that right? No. You shall have no other gods before me. Sorry. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is number one. Points up. Talking about God. You shall have no other gods before the true God of the Bible. Secondly, you shall not make any graven images. And the memory aid for this is uh, scissors. So you're, you're cutting with construction paper to make your false god. The Bible says don't do that. Or as uh, Anais and I have our 2CV, a second commandment violation. Don't do that. Don't make images of God. Why? Because he said not to. Simple as that. Uh, number three, don't take God's name in vain. That, the memory for that is uh, a three, which also makes a W for watch your words. Don't take God's name in vain. But that's also don't, don't take on God's name in vain. Don't be like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian when you're not. Calling things Christian that are not Christian. Don't do that. 
Don't throw around God's name, using it as a swear word, using it as an empty word. Don't be saying, oh my God, when you're excited about something. That's taking God's name in vain. That's using God's name in an empty way, in a way without meaning. That's sin. It's a violation of God's law. The fourth commandment is uh, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, the memory aid for that is a bit of a stretch, but whatever. They're all kind of a bit of a stretch. But this is, uh, you got four, so the fourth commandment. Uh, the, at some point in American history, the typical family had a mom, a dad, and two kids. So that's four people. And not in New York, but they are driving a car with four doors and four wheels. And uh, that's how they're getting to church. So you might need a different memory aid if none of that applies to you. Um, but anyway, remember the Sabbath day to keep it whole. Or you could just memorize them cold since you memorize lots of other things cold without a memory aid. Uh, the fifth commandment is to honor mom and dad. That's a salute, by the way. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Don't trash talk them. Don't curse at them. Don't curse about them. Honor your mother and father. The command to honor your mother and father is abiding, whether you're old or young. The command to obey is for children. But all people must honor their parents, even parents that are dishonorable, even parents who are ungodly. You should not be cursing your mother and father, even if they deserve it. You should not curse them. You should not dishonor them because they are your mother and father. Also, this commandment says that it's the first one with a promise and that if you honor them, your days will be long on the earth. So there are these promises. There are these blessings that God has instructed us where he says, hey, if you do this, then there will be a certain outcome. Well, both blessings and cursings. If you honor your mother and father, you're going to live a long life generally speaking, in a uh, poetic literature sense. The poetry, whether we're talking um, general principles in the Proverbs and in the Psalms, there are these general truths that if you do this, then there will be certain outcomes. Well, that is true of honoring your mother and father. If you honor your parents, you will live a longer life. Why? Because your parents are smarter than you are. They know more than you know even if you're pretty smart. Like, they've just lived longer, so they've seen more things. If they tell you don't stick your finger in that power outlet, you're you're not going to live real long if you defy them. If they say don't play in traffic, you're not going to live real long if you defy them. If they say, hey, maybe you shouldn't drink so much, you're not going to live real long if you defy them. And so this commandment has its promise attached to it, to honor your mother and father so that you will live a long life. The sixth commandment is you shall not kill. Memory aid for that is you got five over here, one over here, and this makes a gun, and it goes pow, and then they die. Don't kill. Now, that specifically means don't murder. So there's lots of forms of killing that would not be murder, such as um, the death penalty or just war. Today's sermon is not about either of those things, so we're not going to get into the ins and outs of what makes a war just or unjust, but just let me assure you, it has nothing to do with how much money we can make on the thing. Um, There is such thing as biblical self-defense. Jesus' instruction for us in the uh, Sermon on the Mount is not the only thing that the Bible teaches about turning the other cheek. He also says, buy a sword. He also says, protect your family. He says, love your neighbor, and you have no nearer neighbor than your wife and kids. So 
There is, there is a just form of killing, but the Bible says do not murder. And when you murder, you are violating the sixth commandment. Now, there is salvation available for murderers, and that even includes those who have committed the murder we know as abortion. There is forgiveness available. So we ought not to water that down and say, oh, it's not really a life, or it's not really killing, or it's not really taking an innocent human life, because we don't want to use the M word. No, we should use the M word. And if you are guilty of that, you would not be the first one in this church. You would not be the first one to receive and walk in the forgiveness of that sin. That forgiveness is available to you. By the way, our previous church, NCC, one of the three founding members of that church was a murderer, murderer. Like, like, like he killed somebody else he was face-to-face with. So we started out at that point being like, this is a church where you can come to Christ as you are. You can come to Jesus fully owning it and saying, yeah, I'm a bad dude. I'm a bad person but Jesus came to save sinners. So, number six, don't kill, don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Um, memory aid for that is, there's two options. Um, option one is, uh, so you got your five over here and your two here for seven. Uh, so you've got a cake, a wedding cake, and you've got the two little bride and groom on the top of it. So that's, that's one option. And then the other option is that this is the world and this is the Christian, the godly way of life. The normal for Christianity is that, so the world is doing their own thing, and that in the, the Christian life is that you are a virgin. So this V, you're a virgin until marriage. And so that, that too reminds you of V. So that would be a memory aid for thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, Eight, thou shalt not steal. So back in the olden days, the days of yore, um, back in the old times when you would steal things, they would chop your fingers off. So you have eight here and you're missing your thumbs because you were a thief and you did it twice and you didn't learn the first time. So you lost both your thumbs. Another memory aid for that is that of uh, prison doors slamming, slamming shut in front of you. We don't do that anymore here in New York. We just let people go and carry on with your madness. Um, but yeah, so this is your eight, your, your prison doors uh, don't steal. Uh, stealing is taking things that don't belong to you, by the way. Um, number nine, uh, lying, don't lie. Uh, so in this, you have nine. So you have all of them are pointing up. So there's like the nine that are telling the truth. And then there's this one that's the liar, who's the, the different one. And he's like, no, 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 that's not how it is. Um, so that's the, that's the lie. Don't, don't, don't lie. Um, by the way, a lie is something that's not true. Um, it's not just something you don't like or something that you don't feel is right. Um, a, lying, a lie is something that is actually a contrary to uh, reality. Um, Number 10, don't covet. So 10 fingers, grabbing, longing, lusting, desiring, saying, give me, give me, give me. Um, I visualize my one-year-old son who's uh, clinging to me, like, daddy, daddy, like trying to get whatever it is, the the thing that he wants, whether it's something on top of the counter, he's like reaching for that. And so that's your memory aid for number 10. There will be a quiz next week. So please uh, be prepared to stand up and say them all um, as as well or better than what I just did to you. So um, there will be 
there will be much grace on that. Um, so the, the law of the Lord has power to save you from your sin. Sin is a violation of God's law. We just went through a summary of God's law. There are more things, like there are more ways that you can sin than just these 10, but these 10 uh, describe it and define it for us, to, to put it in black and white terms. You have sinned, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that's why you need to be saved. And so, subpoint two, the law, the word of God has power to save you from your lost condition. Before we are saved, we are lost. Now, it's kind of hard to get lost in Manhattan because the way the city is laid out. If you find it hard to get lost, if you find it easy to get lost in Manhattan, you are the exception. There's, there's something unusual about your um, understanding of the grid, but there's a grid here in Manhattan. It has numbers and stuff, so like you always know exactly where you are. It's virtually impossible to get lost in city center Manhattan. Now, the West Village is another animal. We're not worried about that right now. But um, before you're saved, you're lost. I have an illustration somewhere in my notes. I can't find it right now, but it's supposed to be here. And that is about the time my brother got lost. In preaching class, they tell you to use illustrations because an illustration turns the light on and it, it's like a picture that shows what the thing is that you're describing. And it's also a little break for your brain. When you're kind of like zoning out, it brings you back. So once upon a time, my family and I were going to Epcot, which is an amusement park in Florida in the Orlando area. And I don't know how old we were, but I was uh, probably under 12, so maybe 10. Uh, so my younger brother, let's say I was 10, my, my youngest brother would have been 7. So I don't know how old Jason and Titus are, but I imagine one of them is probably close to 7. And so just imagine like a, a little boy, a young man. Um, so my youngest brother, Stephen, uh, was lagging behind the rest of us. And Epcot is a very large amusement park. It's built on, a, there's like a pond or a lake in the middle. And so the whole thing is kind of a circle and um, there are these different, um, uh, not booths or displays, but different pavilions. pavilions. That's the word, pavilions, for uh, I think 11 different countries. Um, and so these pavilions for these different countries, it's like a walk around uh, the world going around this, this lake in the middle. And at some point, my youngest brother, Stephen, got lost. He stopped following us. He turned, he turned away. He went the opposite direction. And we're looking around, and it's just a sea of people. Imagine, like, the crowd in Times Square or the crowd on Fifth Avenue or just a New York City crowd. It's like that, but the entire park is that crowded. And um, Stephen was gone. And this was also before cell phones, and he certainly didn't have a cell phone. So uh, this is, like, I guess every parent's nightmare. That's what they tell me. Um, <laughs> This is not good. We lost our kid. Well, at least we have three left. <laughs> no, not good. We have to find him. So what do my parents do? Well, they panic. What else are we to do? So we go and we find, like, the, the help people, like the, the workers, and like, hey, my kid is lost. Okay, what does he look like? Well, he's short and he's blonde. He's a little boy with blonde hair, and he's probably crying. Uh, so, so they put out the word on their radios, and, and the, whole, uh, the whole park goes on, like, look out for this, this boy who's been lost. And they can't find him. So um, he got lost, and that's the end of the story. Uh, let's move on to point number two. <laughs> 
Just kidding. No, he was found in the parking lot. Somehow this kid got out of the park. Like, Jennifer, what you're feeling right now? Like, yes. So frustrated. Like, how did you do that? What? Like, how many workers had to watch this kid wandering around by himself? I don't know if he rode on some trams, too. Like, some, some like, public transit there in the park to get to the parking lot. But he was found in the parking lot of this, this amusement park. Um, Before we're saved, we're more lost than that. We're so lost, we don't even know we're lost. We're not even wandering around crying, okay? That crying thing, that sense of lostness that let's say you're here today and you're lost, you're here today and you're not a Christian. If you feel like you're lost, that's a sign of hope that God has begun seeking you out to to show you that maybe, possibly, you need a Savior, That's the the initial awakening, the initial sense of lostness is the work of the Holy Spirit that begins to draw you to Christ. Before you are saved, you are more lost than my little brother. The Word of God has power to save you from your lost condition. Subpoint three, the Word of God has power to save you from yourself. Power to save you from yourself. Our society elevates self above God. It uses expressions like, well, be true to yourself, or find yourself, or live for yourself. The solution to this extreme elevation of the individual self is not to embrace collectivism, however, which is unfortunately what pseudo-conservatives are doing these days as they pivot from the 2010 to 2020 woke selves to develop their new persona. The solution... Rather, to radical individualism is not to give your life to the collective, but rather to give your life to God. The Word of God has power to save you from yourself. Next, D, power to save you from the wrath of God. The Word of God has power to save you from the wrath of God. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He died under the wrath of God that was poured out on him after he took your sins and mine upon himself. Next, power to save you from hell. The word of God has power to save you from hell. Those who do not believe on Jesus, those who believe on Jesus don't go to hell when they die. Those who do not believe on Jesus do go to hell when they die. There are only two options. And also, by the way, purgatory is not one of them. Purgatory is not a biblical concept. It's in the Apocrypha. It's one of those untrue stories that made it in to the Catholic Bible before Uh, the reformers came and reformed a few things. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. You die once, and then after that comes the judgment. So everybody's going to die. The death rate's pretty near 100%. So once you die, then you're going to stand before God. And you're going to be granted either access to heaven or being sent to hell. And the basis for that will be on your works, which are bad. So therefore, your only way to get into heaven would be the works of Jesus, which are good. And if you believe on him, they are credited to your account. So that perfect record of righteousness is placed on your account. And so he looks on you and says, whoa, you are paid in full, sinless. As perfect as Jesus Christ. Yes, come on in. We have a robe for you. We have a wedding place prepared for you at the table, at the banquet. There's a seat with your name at it. 
We're ready for you, sir. We've been delighted waiting for you to come. We're so glad to see you. The word of God has power to save you from hell and to bring you safely to heaven. There is actual rescuing power in the word of God. It is in the Bible that we read how Jesus was born in that stable. That thing, we talk about this at Christmas time. Jesus' birth to a young virgin named Mary and how Jesus lived a perfectly pure life and he went around performing miracles and he assembled a ragtag band of brothers to follow him and he taught them like a rabbi. But he was more than a rabbi. He was the son of God. He was the sinless son of God. He was the son of man and the son of God. But son of man doesn't just mean a man. It means the divine son He is truly man and truly God in his incarnation. And then he keeps that forever. He is is enfleshed even today, seated at the right hand of the Father. We read in the Bible how Jesus was falsely accused of leading an insurrection against the government, how he was accused of trying to overthrow the temple, and he was accused, rightly accused, of claiming to be God. We read how he was arrested and tried in a kangaroo court, how he was found innocent repeatedly, but they still pushed it on through saying, no, we're going to keep trying until we kill this man. He was forced through to execution by an angry mob. And we read how in his execution, he was nailed to a cross between two thieves, men who were truly terrorists and traitors. In the word of God, we read how one of those men looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and he looks over at him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we read in the word of God how Jesus says to that criminal who was still a criminal as he's hanging on the cross, he was not cleaning up his act. He was not turning around his life. He was just looking to Jesus And Jesus looks at him and says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the word of God, we read how Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb and how he was raised from the dead by all three persons of the Trinity, including himself. Behold, the mystery of the incarnation and the extra Calvinisticum, which we talked about last week. That is, his deity continues to uphold the universe while he was enfleshed. While he was an infant lying in a manger, he is still divine and upholding the universe. While he is nursing at his mother's breast, he is still performing all of his responsibilities as the second person of the Trinity. While he is being beaten, and while he is dying on the cross and laying dead in the tomb, he is still maintaining all of his divine attributes seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How does that work? Well, I don't know. I also don't know how the resurrection works or how the Trinity works. But in the Bible, we read of this power to save. Secondly, our second major point is power to sanctify. The word of God has power to sanctify you. Verse 7b, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Yes, it is true that if you read the Bible, it might make you a little bit smarter. It might make you a little bit more intelligent or a little bit less dumb if that's a problem that you have. 
But that's not the point of these words. The point of these words is that it is actually making you better. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The Baptist Catechism, which is a thing, like those are capital letters, the Baptist Catechism, says on question 38, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Believe it or not, believe it or not, when you are saved, you are not instantly, actually, experientially righteous. The moment you are saved, you are not perfect. You still have baggage. You still have problems. You still have all kinds of issues. And that sanctification process begins at salvation, but it's going to continue throughout the course of your Christian life. And the word of God has power to do that. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to sanctify you. Romans 12.2 says, we are transformed by renewing our minds. You're never going to be made holy, actually holy, actually sanctified by trying harder to do better by the force of your own will or your moral resolve. Do you, do you know any people that are non-Christians that are really moral, good people? There's a certain annoyance to them where it's like, yeah, they're, they're good, and they're aware that they're good, and they're kind of pleased that they're good, and it's really irritating. Like, when you see them, you're just like, you think you're really great, don't you? It's like, yeah, well, I am. I'm really great. And maybe they are, but they have so much pride in their goodness that even that is not a righteousness. That is unrighteousness. Which is what is a little something that what Isaiah 64, 6 is speaking about when it says that our righteousnesses, our goodness, our best things are filthy rags before God. Even our good deeds, our giving money to the church or to the poor or, or donating our time or our labors, like even those good things for the non-Christian are sin in the sight of God because, well, just one example, they're done for ego or for pride or for reputation. You've been to those churches where every single thing in the church has a name on it? This pew donated by John and Sally Smith. This pew donated by Tom and Melinda Jones. This pew donated, this coffee provided by, and it's like every single thing in the building. It's like a museum in there. Everything has a little placard on it. It's instructive. It teaches you what this place is all about. The buildings have names on them. This is the, this is the Woodard wing, donated in part by Andy Woodard III. You're just like, wow, okay. They got their reward. 
even our good deeds, when done for wrong motives, are counted as unrighteousness. So you're never going to actually be made holy with God's kind of holiness by trying harder to do better by the force of your own will or moral resolve. What will make you holy is you're going to be made more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and presses it into your heart as your heart has been softened like clay that is gently heated in the furnace of affliction. I'm reminded of the lyrics of the hymn, Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. This is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee. Blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness. Stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. Oh, to be like thee, lowly in spirit, holy and harmless, patient and brave, meekly enduring cruel reproaches, willing to suffer others to save. Oh, to be like thee, Lord, I am coming now to receive the anointing divine. All that I am and have I am bringing. Lord, from this moment all shall be thine. Oh, to be like thee, while I am pleading, pour out thy spirit, fill with thy love. Make me a temple fit for thy dwelling, fit me for life and heaven above. In this hymn, I see the testimony of the saved sinner who in humble desperation is crying out to God, Oh God, make me like Jesus. The word of God has power to sanctify you. Number three, the word of God has power to give you joy. Verse 8, the word of God has power to give you joy. The statutes of the Lord are right and rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Why would the word of God give us joy? I mean, it says that it gives us joy, but why? Well, very simply, to restate the same types of things that I say every single week, In the word of God, we learn that our sin debt has been fully paid by the blood of Jesus. And because of that, on that basis, we are set free. In the word of God, we see that we don't have to live lives weighed down by the burden of sin and shame, but we can actually be set free, not only from the legal claim of sin and death, but we can also be delivered from the power of sin. We can have joy, and we can have that joy because of the power of the gospel, not only to save us, but to sanctify us. For those who have children, you probably remember this more quickly and easily, but for the rest of us, or those who grew up in the 90s, do you remember Winnie the Pooh? There was a character in Winnie the Pooh named Eeyore. Yeah, yeah, Nancy remembers Eeyore. What was Eeyore like? Sad, always pessimistic, always down. Which direction did his ears point? Down. What was, what was Eeyore? He was a donkey. Okay, so donkeys, their ears normally point up. His ears pointed down. He was always sad. 
I have no idea how to spell Eeyore. I just phonetically wrote it in my notes. E-E-Y-O-R, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. The unhappy Christian, the Christian who is like Eeyore, that is a tragic thing. How are you today? Bad. (laughs) Well, you made it to church. I know. You made it here on time. Yeah, but I almost didn't. How are you feeling? How's your health? Oh, it's good. I just I think I might get sick though. <laughs> How's your work going? It's good, but I think I might quit my job. <laughs> well, why? I don't know. It's just stuff just happens to me, and I, I think I might quit before before that happens. <laughs> that's 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 a tragedy, okay? If that's you, we we need to we need to do some some soul care. We need some work on that. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Lord gives us joy, and he gives us joy through his word. So let me ask, if that's you, are you saturating your mind? Well, I know the answer if that's you. Are you saturating your mind with the word of God? Or are you filling your mind with the news? Or social media? Or talking to your unhappy relatives? Or your unhappy coworkers, or any of these other people in your life that are just miserable all the time. Now, I am not saying that you need to be ignorant or isolated from world events, and I'm not saying that you need to delete social media just to be disconnected from all that's going on. I think that that is right up there next to saying we need to flee from the big bad cities to move to safe places. Like, no, I think that all of that is sticking your head in the sand and that you need to have a balanced approach to all of these things because guess what? You can delete social media and you'll still waste time. You'll find other ways to do that. That's not going to fix your lack of discipline. Just going to hide it for a few days. What you need to do is to saturate your mind with the Word of God. I'm not saying to be ignorant or isolated from world events, but there are sources of information which tear us down and fill us with despair. We should not be constantly soaking ourselves in those problems. There are problems which you and I can do nothing to fix. So, I haven't checked the news. I don't know what bad stuff happened this morning. Um, But let's just say that football game last night that uh, the refs did some dirty things about. Um, I don't even remember the names of, uh, is it the Lions? Was the Lions playing? What was the other team? Cowboys? Cowboys against Lions? Um, You know, that could be really discouraging if you root for the team that lost. I don't even remember who lost, but the Lions lost, right? Based on Tim's Facebook video, I'm seeing. Like, he's excited, and then he's sad. So I'm assuming Detroit lost. Um, So that's you. You know, that's a very heartbreaking thing. You can fill the rest of your day with that. You can watch it over and over and over again. And you can get out the rule book, the NFL rule book, and, and try to figure out how they could possibly justify this explanation and just saturate your mind in this. And then you can look at the standings and the records and what this is going to do to your playoff chances and how, well, now it's just going to be a lot harder, if it is. I don't know. I have no idea. But Or you can just be like, okay, well, we lost. And that's sad, very disappointed. Gonna go have some more chips and salsa, finish my 
snacks for this post-game situation and then move on. We'll watch them next weekend and hope for the best then. You can be aware of what's going on in the world without, without being consumed by what's going on so that that then causes you to spiral into this uh, downward uh, death spiral of negativity. Um, beyond these sources of information and, and apps and websites and things that just are really bad, there's also people. There are people that suck the life out of us. And then there's the Word of God. The Word of God fills our heart. It gives us joy. It gives light to our eyes. Verse 8 says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord. I always say commandments instead of commandment, and I'm not sure why that is, but the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You will not have these two things at the same time. Number one, you will not have both a mind filled with the word of God and number two, a face whose resting expression is sheer disdain and contempt for everyone and everything. Your mind cannot and will not be saturated with the love of Christ for sinners while your face proclaims hatred for everyone around you. Those two things just will not happen. There's not a person on this planet whose face communicates, I hate everyone and everything, who is at the same time filling their mind with the love of Christ for sinners. It doesn't exist. So if you say, oh, well, my facial expressions in the resting position are just bad, I would say the reason for that is because your thoughts are bad. Your face is a window to your soul. Your eyes are a window to your soul. If this is a problem for you, you need to turn your life upside down or actually upside right. The Bible word for this is repentance. Christians need to repent too. Repentance is a Holy Spirit wrought awakening. Where the lights turn on and you go, aha, or in this case, woe is me. I am undone. I am unclean. And I need to change my lifestyle choices, namely my thought patterns and the things that I fill my mind with that cause me to hate everyone and everything. Because the word of God has power to give you joy. So if you're filling your mind with the word of God, you'll have joy. Point four, moving on. The word of God has power to endure, power to endure. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let me ask you, are you the type of person who, when you say something or do something awkward, you rehearse it over and over in your mind forever? Raise your hand if that's you. That's me, okay? My hand is up. Like, some of the cringiest moments of my life, I I still think about, like, from when I was 10, my mom was doing a kids program at our church, and she, she got uh, Christmas presents for all of us, uh, all of the kids who were in the kids program. And um, yeah, I got Christmas presents under the tree too, but this is a completely different operation here. So um, open up this box of Legos. It was like, oh, wow, Legos, cool. And then 
Um, I'm like so excited. I start yelling for my brother, not the one who got lost. We couldn't find him. He got lost, remember? The other one who we still had, Peter. Um, <laughs> Peter came. I'm like, Peter, get over here. And like, I'm yelling at him to come like, check this out. <coughs> Excuse me. My, my mother misinterpreted my um, excitement for anger. And she thought I was mad. And she was upset about that. And she brought it up to me later that, that night. And I was heartbroken that my excitement was interpreted as being upset and that it caused her to feel like I wasn't happy with what she got me. And this like still rolls in my mind like a movie today. And it's been well over 20 years since this happened. These awkward and cringy moments that each of us have, that we've, we've, we've done and said all sorts of little things, things that aren't even bad, things that were misunderstandings, but we have countless things like this in our lives. You're haunted by these memories for the rest of your life or until you do something more embarrassing. If you're like me and you find your, your words are often regrettable, you say things you wish you didn't, one of the strange cruelties of Facebook Messenger is that it keeps your message history there forever. So if you haven't spoken to someone in 10 years and you've gotten five new phones since then, your phone's like, you, it's a fresh start, you know? It doesn't have all those messages on it. Well, then you open up Facebook Messenger and lo and behold, there's that message that you sent 10 years ago and it's still sitting there staring you in the face. And it's cringy. Our words are often embarrassing to us, and we wish that they would go away. The great fear in journaling is that someday someone might read our private thoughts. But God's words are the type of words that endure. And the reason they endure is because they are clean. They are true. They are righteous. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word of God has power to endure. We're still reading it. And it was written thousands of years ago. Point five, conclusion. The word of God is worthy of our desire. Have you often felt as though your relationship with the Bible is primarily framed by duty? You ought to read the Bible. You ought to read the Bible every day. Or a mature Christian will read the Bible, the entire Bible, every year. By the way, I was going to have everybody stand up. So stand up. Just kidding. Um, I was going to have everybody stand up. And then I was going to say, sit down if you did not read the entire Bible this year. Just to see, like, how many people in the room read the entire Bible this year. But in my focus groups, I realized this is going to be a very small number of people that did read the Bible. And so I wouldn't want to make like two of you be standing up and everybody else be sitting down because that would just be awkward for all of us. So we're not doing that. And, um, but every year around this time of year, most every church is going to have some message about New Year's resolutions, losing weight, saving money, getting your life together, reading the Bible, starting your New Year's Bible plan. By the way, there's still time you can finish your Bible reading plan uh, before the New Year. <laughs> but 
What I'm doing today is not, is, is not aimed at beating you up for not reading the Bible or beating you into wanting to, into reading the Bible, but rather is to uh, hopefully compel you to desire to read the Bible. And the goal, um, whether we're succeeding or not, is not just to say you ought to do this or you ought to want this, but is to actually um, provoke at least a little bit of wanting within you. Um, by the way, it's not wrong to ask questions like, or, or even to say things like, you ought to read the Bible every day. It is true, and that is not a bad thing to say. Uh, it is not wrong to say that a mature Christian will read the entire Bible every year. Like, well, how many other things are you reading? How many other, like, it only takes 100 hours, roughly, to read or listen to the entire Bible. And judging by our uh, activity trackers on our phones that monitor how much usage we use our phones, we have the time. We could. We could read the Bible multiple times a year, uh, judging by how much extra time we have to do all sorts of other more frivolous things. Um, so it's not wrong to ask, how many days this week did you have personal devotions? That's not a legalistic question. I mean, how many days this week did you eat food? It's not a bad question to ask. It's just a basic, simple question. You need to be sustained, so you probably ate food every day. Well, how's your soul going to be sustained? Well, it's going to be sustained by the Spirit, through the Word. So how is that working if you're starving yourself? Well, this is a large part of why so many people are spiritually starving, spiritually malnourished. These questions aren't wrong and they're not bad, but I would like you to know that what the Bible says about itself is better than even these questions. It's not merely saying that you should read the Bible. Let me read the verse. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. What the Bible is saying is more than just an obligation or more than an assignment, but is actually speaking to the desirability of the word of God, that the Bible is worthy of desire. So let me illustrate this. You you know the experience of having a, a delicious food that you want to share with your friends. You love that food and you'll love your friends. That's why they're your friends. So you want them to try that food so that they can have the same delightful experience as you. Our church is a church of diversity, many different cultures and backgrounds and, and foods. And so lots of us have foods in our, um, I don't know, I want to say repertory, but that's not the word, whatever, our, our, our menu, our collection of foods that we like that other people have never had before. And so it's a delightful thing to share those tastes with other people, those we care about. You want others to have the same delightful experience as you. You want them to be happy like you're happy. Last March, I was in Israel with the Abendroth Brothers uh, tour group. And uh, one evening, several of us went exploring somewhere in Old City, Jerusalem. We ended up sampling a few kinds of baklava at the street market. And let me tell you. But raise your hand if you have never had baklava. Raise your, like ear to elbow. Put your hand up high. All right, so there's a few of you who have never had baklava. Um, if you're allergic to nuts, it usually has nuts in it. So if you're allergic to honey, it usually has honey, it has honey in it. Um, but I put in my notes, Alex Alberto, you have to try it. It's even better than steak. So what happens when you have that baklava? Let's say that you are the one who's familiar with baklava, or baklava, 
I'm not sure how to say this, baklava. Uh, you, you have it, and you're trying to describe what it tastes like to your friends. You say, well, it's sweet. And it has this flaky pastry dough. Man, I'm getting hungry. And it has chopped nuts with that, uh, what, pistachios? Pistachios, is that? Um, that honey drizzle on top of it all. It's cut into nice little pieces, bite size. Especially like the diagonal cuts, those are the best. You can describe it all day, but what is your goal? Your goal is for your friend to taste it. Not just to listen to you describe it. You want them to actually put it in their mouth. You want them to taste that food. And so too, I can tell you that the word of God is worthy of desire. And I can tell you that the word of God is good. But ultimately, I am urging you with the psalmist to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it. Try it. And here's what will happen when you do that. You will develop a taste, a hunger for the word of God. You will, desire, you will develop a desire for his presence in your life that comes as a result. And when I say presence, I mean the experiential, tangible, felt presence of God in your life. And that brings light to your eyes and a smile to your face. That actually happens for the Christian who is walking with God. As you are reading the Bible, as you are studying the Bible, as you are memorizing the Bible, as you are meditating on the Bible, as you are listening to and hearing the Bible read and preached and sung, all of these things will happen for you and it will change from being a duty, from being a drudgery, from being a chore to being something that you want to do. It will change from a duty to a delight. And this is the power of the word of God. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this year, moving forward, that we would read the word of God, that we would saturate our minds in it, that our knowledge of the word of God today would be a starting point, a line, a marker, where a year from today, we will know you more. We will know your word more. That we would read your word this year, that we would read it every day, that we would meditate on your word not seeking to empty our minds, but to fill our minds with the word of God and the promises of God, the blessings of God for us, that we would saturate our minds with these things and so we would be transformed. For those who are lost, that they would be saved, they would find their salvation in Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the Bible. That those, all of us who need to be sanctified, that we would find our sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the grace of Jesus Christ, which is revealed to us in the Bible. That those who are sad or in despair, that they would find the joy of the Lord being their strength as revealed to them in the pages of Holy Scripture.
And Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us a desire for the word of God that exceeds our desire for the other things in our lives. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word, and I thank you for these verses that we're able to consider this morning. I pray that this message would be useful to your people. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.